When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi podcast where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the Internet's finest podcast for music commissioned by Stanley Kubrick for his moon landing. We're going to start today off with a little bit of trivia. You know more than I know. You know more. All right, Joe. So I guess I should start by wishing you and our legion of fans a very happy holidays. Merry Christmas or uh, happy whatever you celebrate. Yeah. This is our uh, third Christmas episode, holiday episode. We don't really do much except for the songs, but I did want to do a bit of holiday trivia. So what I got for you is a... uh, Letter replacement quiz, like we like to do sometimes. So I'm going to read you a clue about a famous Christmas song. And you got to tell me what that song is. It's going to be a famous Christmas song with a single letter or two replaced to change the meaning of the song. Okay. All right. You ready for the first one? Sure. Who does Bing Crosby call when David Bowie clogs his miniature toilet? Little Plumber Boy? Very good. Good job. All right. Shane McGowan enjoys festive yogurts and cheese at Rockefeller Plaza. Dairy Tale of New York? That's correct. Good job. Here's the next one. Bobby Helms puts a little tiny elf hat on his best rooster in preparation for tonight's bout. Read it again. (laughs) But... This is really bad. Cocking around the Christmas tree? (laughs) Wrong song, but you're really close. Bobby Helm puts a little tiny elf hat on his best rooster in preparation for tonight's bout. I just can't think of the Bobby Helm song. That would be Jingle Bell Cock. Oh, okay, okay. They're real close with cocking around the Christmas tree, which I actually like better. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Elvis starts huffing his holiday arts and crafts project. Glue Christmas. Very good. Glue Christmas. This one's a double, so I I changed two words in the song title. Tom Waits receives the traditional Christmas fish 
from Timberwolf Center, Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony Towns is, okay, so Christmas card from a hooker in Minneapolis. Christmas carp <laughs> from a Christmas carp from a hooper in Minneapolis. Excellent work. Good job. Ooh, that was that was tough. That was a tough one. You really had to use all sorts of brain cells on that one. Mariah Carey desperately seeks the affection of the Hulk. Um, I don't know which song she's most known for. It's All I Want for Christmas is Lou. Oh, okay. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Tripped you up on that one. Okay. Yeah. All right. You should you should uh, recover nicely with this. Tito, Jermaine, and Michael sneak downstairs to find Jolly St. Nick smooching that deaf, dumb, and blind boy. I saw Tommy kissing Santa Claus. Very good. Wow. That's amazing. That's a really good title. <laughs> All right. This might be my favorite. Joey Ramone is tired of working on footnotes for his research paper. Merry Christmas, baby. I don't want to fight tonight. Merry Christmas, baby. I don't want to type tonight. Oh, very close. Merry Christmas. I don't want to cite tonight. Oh, cite. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Oh, man. That was awesome. Good one. <laughs> wow. Okay. This one is less awesome. <laughs> Back to Bing. Bing Crosby is dreaming of a belt for Christmas to prevent embarrassingly saggy pants. Have yourself a belly little Christmas? <laughs> nope, it's just tight Christmas. Like w- oh, okay. white okay. Christmas. Oh man, I was going way too hard yep. for that one. Yep. Okay. This is another double, but I think you got it. Okay. Burl Ives is taking his dog Lassie to see some melting clocks at the museum. Have a collie dolly Christmas. Very good. Way to end a strong. Good job. Wow. Man, those were really good. Yeah, I thought you did real well on them. Thank you. I feel feel pretty good about that. Yeah, you did good. Very good. I close out the year with one good one. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> All right, are you ready for the audio quiz? Let's do it. Okay, so as you know, if you read the title of the episode i didn't this episode is going to be about conspiracy theories myths about rock urban legends that kind of thing so what i did with the audio quiz is you are going to hear eight clips of music i'd like to have artist title a song and then what is the urban legend or myth that is that surrounds that song specifically and it's not always going to be the version that you hear but it's the song okay okay so artist title the song and then whatever urban legend is around that song yes what is the most well-known conspiracy theory or urban legend surrounding that song all right cool sounds great okay i think i could do that there are eight of them oh my gosh yeah i'm sorry here we go track one Track two. I was not offended 
Oh, I knew I had to rise above it all or drown in my own shit. Track three. Track four. Yeah, I got a lot of the songs. Um, Good. And I know some, I think I know some of the urban legends. I'm, the great thing about this is I'm, the ones I don't know, I'm really curious about now. <laughs> good, good. And I didn't make up any of them. Okay. So they're fair, fair game. All right. That sounds good. So we'll come back at the end and you'll tell me the answers and uh, let me know what the urban legends are. Yes, we'll play them one more time. We'll go through them and we'll talk about the legend surrounding each song. Perfect. Let's move along then and go right into the turntable talk. I think this is going to be a fun one. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. The holidays are a time of peace, joy, and love. They are also the best time to look around, take a breath, and stop a minute to enjoy all the madness that constantly swirls amongst us. Here at Highway Hi-Fi, our Christmas episode is the show we allow ourselves to talk about some of our favorite stories that are too small for their own turntable talk, but too good not to share, all of which have nothing at all to do with Yuletide festivities. You get enough of that in your day-to-day life, I'm sure. So the theme of this year is our favorite music conspiracies and myths. Sure, we could talk about your garden variety, Paul is dead, Elvis is alive, Chris Christopherson is a lizard person, and Jay-Z is an Illuminati time-traveling vampire type conspiracies. 
Or we could even go into the typical sort of master puppet situations, like the Laurel Canyon hippie movement was a government-sponsored action to make war protesters seem like druggy ding-dongs. Or that private prison profiteers conspired with record execs to make gangster rap the nation's most popular genre. Heck, we could even bore you with mashups like Dark Side of the Rainbow, or Abba Becoming the Residence, or Stephen King Assassinating Lenin. Oh, no, no, no. Those are all well and good, but here at Highway Hi-Fi, we like to go just a little deeper, a little wackier for our highly discerning audience. So we rolled up our sleeves and hit the dark webs and the sub-sub-subreddits to bring you some of the internet's juiciest bonkersness. Websites where every picture is grainy and plastered with Microsoft Paint embellishments. Websites where no obsolete detail is too minute. Websites where research is a dirty word and where no news is fake. So settle in. Take off your Santa cap and put on your tinfoil hat. Dump out that eggnog and start drinking the Kool-Aid. And quit gazing at the twinkling tree lights in favor of those unexplained glowing orbs circling the room. Bookmark all 23 of your copies of Catcher in the Rye. Crank up the podcast, you sheeple. Today we present our Conspiracy Christmas Spectacular. One of the oldest conspiracy legends revolves around the unusual wartime actions and death of big band super soldier Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller was on top of the world in 1942. In the past three years, the swinging band leader landed 16 number one records and 69 top 10 hits, which would dwarf future stars like Elvis Presley and the non-existent Beatles with songs like In the Mood, Moonlight's Serenade, Chattanooga Choo Choo, and a string of pearls. He was a hit-making machine, and also a weapon of brass destruction. In 1942, Miller enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps under the guise of a patriotic band leader. But his involvement in war efforts went much deeper. Miller's music had an intoxicating effect on the German soldiers, and the U.S. would use Miller to deliver psi-war propaganda to the Nazi soldiers in their native tongue. He learned German from his family. To stir discontent and encourage jazzy freedom against the stiff fascists. His impact was so deep that he had been targeted for assassination by the SS. Essentially, he was the boogie-woogie Captain America. One theory also has Miller integral in Operation Paperclip, which was the effort to smuggle out German scientists working on the atomic bomb, and also to take free office supplies. Miller would embed secret messages in his radio broadcast outlining the plan and ensuring the safety of the scientists and their families. But he got in too deep. Miller has an assignment all the way from the top. General Dwight D. Eisenhower needed him to deliver a top-secret communique to one of the top German defectors, all whilst working out an armistice. This never happened. The mystery of Glenn Miller's death has never fully been uncovered. On record, Glenn Miller died when his single-engine plane, a UC-64 Norseman, went down over the English Channel, leaving no trace of Miller or the crew. Some say that the plane crash was a cover-up and that his mission failed, leaving him betrayed, given over to the Gestapo and tortured. Remaining loyal, 
Miller was eventually killed and dumped outside a Parisian brothel and SS hangout called the Sphinx. In German, I think it's called Der Sphinxter. <laughs> Yet another theory says that his small plane was struck by bombs from friendly RAF bombers returning from an aborted run. The official word is that the plane's carburetor froze up, sending it crashing into the dark, icy waters below, swallowing up the machine and its crew, leaving Glenn Miller frozen in a glacier. The reports after Miller's disappearance were spotty, slow-developing, and contradictory, making the situation ripe for a cover-up. Could the American hero and conductor of the Chattanooga Choo Choo have been railroaded? I'm in the mood for the truth. You may be at home, smug, comfortable in your knowledge that the Beatles actually existed. What with the multitude of record albums, photographs, videos, concerts, interviews, biographies, and the fact that the Fab Four are probably the most researched and over-documented bands of all time. Well, you are wrong. Dead wrong, you dummy. The website, www.thebeatlesdontexist.com, has painstakingly gathered evidence that the world's biggest band never actually was. The website, which, by the way, don't bother looking for as it's now wiped off the internet thanks to the CIA or Yoko Ono, proves that the Beatles was all an elaborate ploy orchestrated by an evil British music establishment. John, Paul, George, and Ringo weren't four people making music, but brainless marionette doubles, and then doubles of those doubles. Huge amounts of players that had to keep the dark secret or face extreme punishment. Forget Paul is dead. Paul is imaginary. There is no Paul. There never was. Just a Paul persona. Sure, someone wrote the songs, played the music, but you'll never know who. They're probably dead. And it wasn't your Santa Claus-esque Paul who could write everything from yesterday to Helter Skelter. Are you kidding me? And you might be asking, how is this all proved? Well, you got to look deep. Height. Eyebrows. Earlobes. Teeth. It's all right there in front of you. Comprehensive examinations of pictures shows that ears change from year to year. Lobe sizes shrinking, expanding. But ears don't change, you say to yourself. You're damn right they don't. And that's why the pictures don't lie. Don't buy in the product. The Beatles are a lie. Look at the lobes. I'd like to apologize to those of you whose bowels just evacuated. The noise you heard is the famous brown note that a lot of people seem to think isn't real. Those of you with soiled pants right now know it's real. Well, most of you with soiled pants know it. Some of you just like to party with your own sick. It was Tesla who said, If you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. The brown note was first reported on in the New Scientist magazine on December 26th of 1974, the day after Christmas. In this article, the genesis of the note in question is written about in detail. According to that article, titled The Colophone Commemorated, it was in 1841 that a former seaman turned blacksmith 
by the name of Colander, started to create iron-made horns that he dubbed colophones. These horns made incredible sounds that were unheard of at the time. Audiences raved and gathered by the hundreds to hear these majestic horns. Colander rented them out so that the sound could reach more ears in more towns. Colander even kept tinkering with those horns and found a way to expand the sound and increase the volume, an invention he made would end up being pilfered by the gramophone industry. Big gramophone, really. <laughs> he also added harnesses and special helmets so that the dangerously heavy horns could be carried and played while walking. By the time of the Great Exhibition of 1851, Colander was commissioned to create a giant version of his horn. Construction started a year prior and was completed on time, barely. The bell of this horn measured 110 feet in diameter. Early tests were positive, and the excitement grew. For the exhibition, Prince Albert was in attendance to hear the national anthem played by this monolithic horn. Crowds began gathering early, like a late 70s Springsteen concert, with people finding spots the night before and sleeping there in hopes of hearing this miraculous instrument. Unfortunately, what happened next was not very well digested. As the horn began to flatulate, the crowd quieted, and then many started to feel unwell. Near the end of the first verse, a noticeable discomfort had started to take hold of the crowd. That discomfort started in their brains, but quickly made its way to the loins. People began wailing in pain, and that's when the mass soiling of diarrhea began. Pants and petticoats were doused with moist feces. Some people fainted, falling into other people's discharge. Sounds like the uh, the post-LARP Taco Bell run. <laughs> <laughs> and thus, the Tacos Grande were invented. <laughs> the horn stopped, thankfully, and the crowd was saved from possible death. Weather factors were initially held responsible, but many scientists now believe it was miasmic magnification that created the turmoil in question. The colophon was disassembled, never to sound again. Colander spent the rest of his life trying to convince the government that this horn could be used as a weapon, but he ended up dying penniless and heartbroken in 1899. The brown note lives on in our culture as an urban myth, but scientists know and keep well hidden the truth in fear of a mass sewage extinction. The brown note succeeds because its frequency affects the body physically with vibrations, in turn pulsating the bowels loose with sound waves. Shitting your pants is not the only mysterious frequency or tone that the government has militarized. If instruments are to sound good being played together, they need to be tuned, and the tone of each needs to match so that when one instrument plays an A, its tone needs to match the other instrument's A. The modern standard tuning worldwide is 440 hertz, which means 440 vibrations per second. But how and when was this decided, and why is it 440 hertz? Standardized tuning didn't start to be a thing until the 19th century, and that was nearly 200 years after the invention of the tuning fork. It was France in 1859 that declared standardized tuning to be 435 hertz, and this was adopted in much of Europe. Britain, because they're assholes, set theirs to 439 hertz. 
an international conference held in London in 1939 finally found a compromise with 440 hertz. Think about what else might have been happening in 1939. More on this in a moment. Music is made of vibrations, and vibrations can have an impact on how we feel. Small shifts in tone can keep us calm or keep us anxious. For example, 432 hertz is the natural tone of the universe. Here's proof. First, it is the sum of four consecutive prime numbers. 103 plus 107 plus 109 plus 113. Adds up. Name another number like that. That's right. (laughs) It's exactly three gross, where gross is 144. An equilateral triangle whose area and perimeter are equal has the area of exactly the square root of 432. Take your word for it, Poindexter. Google it. I don't make this stuff up. (laughs) There's nothing in this episode that's been made up at all. It's fact. It's the pure tone of math fundamental to nature. It even stimulates the heart chakra and increases the spiritual development of listeners. It probably even cures cancer, and maybe even halitosis. What more needs to be said? Music at 432 hertz makes you feel good and lifts your mood. It's the tone of peace and love. Do you know what wasn't the tone of peace and love? Hitler. It was Joseph Goebbels, with backing by the Rothschilds and the Rockefeller Foundation, who forced the 440 hertz standardization in 1939 Just three months before the Germans invaded Poland, Nazi scientists had discovered that 440 hertz may actually generate an unhealthy effect and antisocial behavior in the consciousness of human beings. That's why the powers that be have been able to keep the world in a state of perpetual war by weaponizing music. This was the tuning of the master race. In a paper entitled Musical Cult Control, Dr. Leonard Horowitz writes, The music industry features this imposed frequency that is hurting populations into greater aggression, psychosocial agitation, and emotional distress, predisposing people to physical illness. He's a doctor. Music has a hidden power to affect our minds, our bodies, our thoughts, and our society. When that music is based upon a tuning standard purposely removed from the natural harmonics found in nature, the end result may be the psychic poisoning of the mass mind of humanity. 440 hertz is an abomination against nature, while 432 hertz is consistent with the patterns of the universe and the golden ratio. 432 hertz fans have some competition of late in the tone of 528 hertz, which is known as, quote, the digital bio-holographic precipitation crystallization and the miraculous manifestation of diving frequency vibrations. 528 hertz is really 444 when compared to the 432 and 440, but 528 sounds a lot cooler. It's more. We quoted Dr. Leonard Horowitz above, which appears to make him a staunch supporter of 432. He claims that those who use his words as a proponent of 432 have bastardized and misappropriated his writings. It disgusts him, he claims in an article from 2015. Horowitz is actually one of the leaders of what is called the hashtag 528 love revolution. (laughs) He believes that the 432 crowd has been manufactured by big money, 
to keep people at odds in the war between dissonance and harmony. The 528 Love Revolution calls for the retuning of the world's instruments to undo the acoustic war that has been raging upon our ears. Down with culture manipulation through sound, which leads to mass hysteria. The 528 Love Revolution is also my favorite uh, Prince backing band. (laughs) 528ers don't think there's anything wrong with a 432 tone and in fact believe both are therapeutic. They have harmony together, and this is proven by subtracting 432 from 444. It equals 12. 12? What could be more harmonic than 12? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Both groups absolutely agree, though, that 440 is vile. Just look at what's happened with music since 440 took over. Rock and roll, that's what's happened. Elvis and the non-existent Beatles, www.thebeatlesdontexist.com, prove that 440 causes pandemonium and lunacy while also sexualizing music of the youth. Colonel Tom Parker, as has been proven, was a Rockefeller Foundation plant whose job was to spread noise to kids who in turn would morph into riotous, frenzied idiots. Mission accomplished. Along with rock and roll came Muzak, as discussed in a previous episode. This is yet another way to control the workers and keep them from rising up. Thanks, 440. This tone stymies creativity, and what we're left with is rock and roll and Muzak. So, Joe, where do you fall on the uh, 432, 440, 528 debate? I'm a 528er. Hashtag 528LoveRevolution. <laughs> I was wondering why you got that tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> on your face. <laughs> it's right below www.thebeatlesdontexist.com. <laughs> really doing better on our social media promotion since you started your fa- face tattooing. Take a lot more selfies, that's for sure. In 2012, a young and aspiring star desperately sought validation from a personal idol. The results proved to be deadly. With a propensity for outlandishness and controversy, Lady Gaga needed to up the ante on the follow-up to her hit record, Born This Way. She turned her eyes to iconic New Yorker leather-clad street poet Lou Reed, who was a spry 71 years old at the time. Gaga wanted to get some avant-garde cred on her new album due to be an homage to the Velvet Underground that she wanted to call art pop. She envisioned Reed to be her Andy Warhol. At first, the gruff and hermetic Reed was not interested in the pop singer's admiration, but a $1.2 million paycheck piqued his interest in acting as a consultant. That's a lot of yoga mats. Gaga began recording art pop using many of the Velvet's most popular songs as a template. Despite Gaga's efforts to incorporate downtown VU aesthetics to the music, when Lou heard the demos, he was silent. Until finally, he was forced to tell her manager that he was uninterested in continuing the partnership. He had a very small dog to walk. They kept Lou's disapproval from Gaga for a while, fearing that it might make her go crazy. But New York whispers got back to her. Gaga called Reed. No one knows exactly what was said, but accusations of plagiarism were cast out. Reed ultimately told Gaga that he would pursue legal actions against her and publicly denounce the record. He called her work 
nauseating. Then, as an added fuck you to his once wannabe protege, Reed publicly gushed his admiration for Kanye West's new album. As a side note, Kanye is part of a pretty great conspiracy that he is the star man of which David Bowie was foretelling on Ziggy Stardust. Yeezus was born almost five years to the day after the release of the album. And what is with that KW on the cover? Coincidence? Yeah, right. Back to Gaga. She became obsessed with Reed's rejection and his description of her work. Nauseating. 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 Her hurt turned to pain, which turned to anger. She gathered some of the highest-powered record industry men for a summit in May 2013, where it was decided that they needed to handle the Reed situation. Reed had been in critical need of a liver transplant. Lou Reed? I know, right? That's a surprise. Came out of nowhere. All that clean living. He should have asked for Keith Richards' used blood. (laughs) He had the finest doctors and was expected to make a full recovery. What he wasn't counting on was a record industry goon adding a dose of polonium to his IV drip, which slowly worked to shut down his liver. Police reports show the hospital experienced a break-in that day, and the security footage was accidentally garbled. Lou succumbed to liver failure just months later. That's the same kind of thing Putin uses. Absolutely. Lady Gaga's raw ambitions lead to her dark places, but not greener pastures. Despite obtaining financial power and unimaginable fame, the evil means Gaga has utilized cast a cloud over her career that is careening dangerously towards becoming totally unhinged. Who will stop her nefarious reign? Just one thing I ask of you Asking a deadhead what their favorite show is is as fruitless as asking them, what's the kindest strain of hashish? You'll get many mostly unfinished sentences. But one thing is for certain, a show that definitely will get mentioned is the famous Cornell show on May 8, 1977 at Barton Hall. The thing is, despite tapes and eyewitness accounts, that show never actually occurred but was rather a wide-scale experiment conducted by our government to test out new mind-control techniques on hippies. This charade started in the late 60s, when the CIA and Department of Defense were unhappy with the youth protests against the Vietnam War. Electing to use mass brainwashing practices, government agents wanted first to see if it would work on the hippies, since they were already pretty good at not knowing what the hell was going on. They would have tried the brown note, but hippies are already covered in their own shit. (laughs) The first attempt at creating a collective event was in 1975, and an abysmal failure since, one, the dead weren't even touring, and two, the recordings they gathered included Pigpen McKernan, who by then was dead, and probably not gratefully so. The mess-up meant the CIA had to spend months covering their tracks and reprogramming the participants. By 1977, they had it all worked out, though. They had acquired more recent dead recordings, picked a date and location that was plausible within their tour schedule, brainwashed scores of kids to remember the show, provided bootleg tapes to traders to be leaked and circulated, 
and most importantly teamed up with Disney and a fledgling computer company called Microsoft to acquire ownership of TV and radio stations around Cornell and spend hours playing subliminal messages that the show had actually happened. Anyone who resisted these messages had to be persuaded through blackmail, bribery, and more extreme mind control itself. The naysayers were silenced, and the imaginary show became a legend amongst fans. Well, no matter what the truth is, I think there's one thing we can all agree on. The best Grateful Dead show is one that never happened. I have always had an inexplicable and unnatural draw towards Andrew W.K. His music, though it has a Ramones-esque naivete charm, is synthetic and annoying. His party boy come motivational speaker persona is sweet, but grating. His aesthetic is a touch too self-aggrandizing for my taste. Despite all this, I feel a real affection for the guy. I even have his first record, for which I really can't square with myself why I have it. His presence in my life has always confounded me. When Joe and I were working on the Sham Band episode, we stumbled across a little thread of Andrew W.K. weirdness, or maybe lore. It's a rabbit hole of which I, much like Alice, am falling down seamlessly forever. What we will share today has been well investigated with all the vigor and depth of a warring commission, and with about as many answers at the end. We are just on the cusp, hoping not to get sucked in beyond where we can return. Still, the story of Andrew W.K., Steve Mike, and the twisted reality between must be addressed on this podcast. Here's what we think we know. Andrew W.K. is Andrew Wilkes Cryer. He's from Michigan. He went to New York, met some rock stars, recorded an EP, got signed, made a record, and got famous with dinky, punky, synthy, poppy metal songs, ostensibly about partying and self-esteem. But really, nothing is that simple. The musician has rewritten his biography, including the origin of his name many times over, suggesting it was derived from his father's fascination with a serial killer called White Killer, or that it can stand for Woman Come, Wild Kid, Want Kicks, Wet Kimono, Wild Kangaroo, Werewolf King, Wasted Koala, Winnie Cooper with a K, or Wanye Kest. Early on, there were suspicions that W.K. was a joke perpetrated on the public by record labels, with the likes of Dave Grohl suspected of penning his songs. Despite the rumor, or perhaps because of it, Andrew W.K.'s first U.K. show propelled him into huge stardom in the States with a slew of party hits, Party Hard, Party Till You Puke, and It's Time to Party. The lyrics themselves are quite dark, even violent which is something that we could dwell on, but I think it should just be noted that there was a sinister underbelly to the Good Time Anthems. Oh yeah, there was also that crazy album cover featuring the epic bloody nose from a self-induced brick smash. It's all off balance, all too strange for a music industry that was veering hard from rock and roll to pop at the time. So moving ahead two years, W.K., 
gives us another album called The Wolf. That still provides some weirdness and cognitive dissonance of the first album. The music's a bit too bright with words a bit too ugly. WK was working, recording, touring, presumably partying nonstop at the time. A blaze of dirty white clothes burning at both ends. Then things went weird. After a show in New Jersey was unexpectedly cut short, rumors began circulating that there was an imposter WK on the stage, dressed like him and similar looking, but clearly the wrong guy. Fans who have a similar obsession, like I mentioned earlier, took to the website to demand answers. The answers provided by Andrew WK's mouthpiece only fueled the fire and confusion. Answers like this. As Andrew himself has stated, he will always be there. You might just not see him. Assumptions are once again at the mercy of possibility. You must know that Andrew's not moving away because he's already gone, which means he's actually closer to you than ever before. There are lots of bizarre responses just like this. Eventually, Andrew W.K. posts on fan pages where, in the past, he'd often interacted. They went from niceties and party platitudes to insane ramblings and long list of numerical codes, which were often indecipherable. Then, on December 21st, 2004, the dam broke wide open when a long letter was posted on Andrew W.K.'s official website from a man calling himself Steve Mike. That's Steve S-T-E-E-V. A threatening letter basically stating that Steve Mike was tired of being pushed out on the third album and that the music was born in his brain and that he was going to expose W.K. The letter was taken down some short time later with a response from Andrew W.K. that, amongst other things, said, Please don't believe Steve Mike. I used to call myself Steve Mike a long time ago, and it's nothing now. Someone is trying to confuse you and make me look bad, like a relationship gone bad. Someone is pretending to be me and the Steve Mike guy. Okay, so we have a jilted partner, or maybe a schizophrenic break, or a crazy publicity stunt. No one knew. As the confusion grew about Steve Mike and Andrew W.K., more and more strange snippets were revealed. Steve Mike was an uncredited producer on the first album, so maybe Steve Mike was the imposter W.K., or maybe W.K. was dead and... Steve Mike was a whistleblower on the record company's sham. Andrew W.K. fell out of the spotlight and did few public performances. Meanwhile, websites went wild with conspiracies involving W.K., Steve Mike, and their relative connections to 9-11, Hollow Earth, Chris Christopherson and his lizard people, Jay-Z and his Illuminati, Grateful Dead-style mind control, and even Tom Cruise. The next album, strangely, was released only in... Japan and Korea due to legal reasons which Andrew W.K. provided the following explanation. I wasn't allowed to use my own name within certain areas of the U.S. entertainment industry, and we were in a debate about who owned the rights to my image and who should get credit for inventing it. The third album, interestingly enough, played with the notions of persona and identity, which would continue to be a part of Andrew W.K.'s later repertoire, including interviews where he would drop these sort of mind-blowing bombs. I want to confess something to you all. I'm not actually Andrew W.K. I'm not. I'm not the same guy that you may have seen from the I Get Wet album. I'm not that same person. And I don't just mean in a philosophical or conceptual way. It's not the same person at all. Do I look the same as that person? Sounds pretty straightforward, right? He's a new guy, right? But then he almost immediately retracts it with, 
Since 2001, I've been accused of being part of a conspiracy in which I knowingly entered into a contract with creative directors who proceeded to invent a new identity for me to perform under. I'm here to say that this is simply not true and a gross exaggeration of easily explainable and commonplace music industry practices. Even so, Steve Mike never quite disappeared, and Andrews W.K. never quite got over it. A new album gave W.K. another opportunity to settle the issue, but yeah, that didn't happen. He issued a statement. At the end of 2004, an old friend of mine got in some business trouble and basically decided to take it out on me. They were able to turn my life and career upside down. Some of you eagle-eared listeners might have just noticed that I said an old friend of mind, M-I-N-D, not mine. Crazy, huh? That was not an accident, unlike most of my mispronunciations. Continually, there would be weird breakdowns, strange coincidences, and offhanded references. Andrew W.K. would eventually name the record label he formed, Steve Mike Records, and the word Steve would show up in music videos. Oh, and he'd plaster a bunch of Illuminati imagery in there because, of course. Again, I need to take a minute to reiterate that the story I'm providing is only the smallest fraction of the mounds of evidence that people collect about Andrew W.K. and Steve Mike. There's numerical code-breaking, handwriting analysis, David Lidge fandom connections, videographic evidence. The article that seemed to break the story was on Stereo Gum, authored by Michael Nelson. The podcast Chiluminati also did a two-part episode that does a pretty good job covering the full saga. There's also a 33 and a third book by Philip Crandall that might do the best job on piecing together Andrew W.K.'s constantly splintering perspectives. Really or not, there's an endless supply of data to track down, crack open, and analyze. Like this supposed former classmate who told a story that Andrew Wilkes Cryer shared the following when the high school drama teacher asked about his future dreams. I don't remember what he said word for word, but he essentially said, First, I'm going to make myself undeniably exist as a recognizable and identifiable form, and then I'm going to spend the rest of my life working to eliminate it and prove that its existence was an impossible illusion all along. But because people have already seen it, they will experience the sensation equal to maximum pleasure. The the guy in the interview thinks that Andrew W.K. wrote that himself. It sure seems that way. Yes. A lot of that does. So at the end of the day, it's truly hard to say what the hell is going on. But it sure seems like Andrew W.K. spent a career doing a long con on deconstructing his public self. Or maybe impersonating himself. Or maybe he was truly breaking. At the end of the day, many of his early bandmates acknowledged that Andrew W.K. was always fascinated with the creation and destruction of Persona. Inventing mythologies, becoming a reliably unreliable narrator. The real question may not be who is Steve Mike, but why is Steve Mike? And who the hell is Andrew W.K. that he can pull this off, explain it, and then unexplain it, laugh in our face about it, and still leave us unsure of what is real? An interesting theory was posted by a user named Eddie on 4chan in 2012. 12 again. 
The post began with a yearbook photo of Neutral Milk Hotel's quirky, kind of smelly lead singer Jeff Mangum. After that, a yearbook photo of someone who was believed to be his sister Caroline. Minutes pass, and a photo appears right next to Caroline Mangum. It's the iconic picture of Anne Frank. Guess what? They look similar enough that they could, and probably are, the same person. What does this mean? Well, not much. Yet. More posting happened, and brains exploded. Another user posted a picture of Jeff Mangum's wife, Astra Taylor, alongside Anne and Caroline. I think you probably know where this is going. And yes, she looks remarkably similar. The three of them could even pass for each other. Had they not lived in different decades, let's fix that, shall we? Based on all of the above rock-solid evidence, it's clear that Jeff Mangum built a time machine and traveled back to rescue Anne Frank mere days before the Nazis found her family. From there, he came back to present day, and Anne was passed off as Jeff's sister. Once they graduated, they moved away, changed her name to Astra, and got married. If you've ever listened to any Neutral Milk Hotel songs, you know that Mangum is in love with Anne Frank and obsesses about incest. And he gives clues to what he did in his songs, dedicated to Anne. In one, he writes, She was born in a bottle rocket with wings that ring around a socket. Clearly a reference to a time machine. In another, he writes, I know she will live forever. She won't ever die. I don't even need to say anything there. And finally, another line says, One day in New York City, a girl fell from the sky. Clearly the voyage back to the future. Other clues to back up this conspiracy reality? One photograph posted from that same yearbook shows Caroline Frank along with a group of unimportant students standing right in front of a nearly hidden Star of David. Mm -hmm. By the way, Anne Frank's remains were never found. Oh yeah, and what, what's the date of her death? That's right, there isn't one. <laughs> the final line of this theory on 4chan, a trusted peer-reviewed site, is, You know how no one knows where Jeff is today? What if he isn't anywhere, but any when? <laughs> he couldn't build himself a third album. There's no way he could build a time machine. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that about uh, finishes up our, our great conspiracy. So uh, just to, to sum up, the Beatles don't exist. Glenn Miller is Captain America. Andrew W.K. is uh, laughing at all of us. Jeff Mangum is a time traveler. The Grateful Dead are the Grateful Dead. And uh, you should really stop listening to rock music because the frequency is not in harmony with your life. Makes you an idiot. Yep. All right. You ready to play some Christmas songs? Yeah, let's do it. My first song isn't a Christmas song at all. Fooled you. It's actually a Hanukkah song. This is Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings with their track, Eight Days of Hanukkah.
late great Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings with their uh, soulful Hanukkah song, Eight Days of Hanukkah. And that was originally from their 2005 album. It's a holiday soul party. I've got it on this weird uh, Georgia holiday single. It's like holiday greetings from the state of Georgia. And it had that as one of the songs. Pretty great. So uh, several members of the Daptones are uh, Jewish, and I think the owner of the label, who goes by Bosco Mann, who is in the band and the owner of the label, he's, he's Jewish, and he wrote the song about his past, his memories from the holidays, and so he included that, and uh, you know, it's just, just one of those great, fun songs, perfect for a holiday party, and it's, it's kind of good to have some, some variety, some, uh, some different holidays to celebrate, so I hope you enjoyed it. Do you have their Christmas album? I don't. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Or holiday yeah. album, sorry. Uh, Everything they do is amazing, so. She didn't really get big until she was much later in life, right? She was over 40, I think. 
Yeah, I think that happened with some other Daptones too, Lee Fields and Charles Bradley, maybe. Charles Bradley, who was really, was really awesome too. Yeah, just a, a great label. You know, I think uh, there's just not enough Hanukkah songs that get played in the holidays. There's um, klezmer versions of Woody Guthrie's uh, Hanukkah songs that are pretty great that I've heard somewhere. But uh, oh, cool! I don't have that. I just heard them. They're pretty fun. Ryan and Cash from the uh, Kindercore episode were giving us some of the amazing stuff they pressed there, and this is one of those those great things. It sounded like they were really um, integral in getting the song selected too, uh, as I remember. So great choice, guys, and a beautiful record, colored vinyl. So I'll make sure we post a picture. All right, my first song is by a guy named Lil McClintock, and it's called Don't Think I'm Santa Claus. Please don't think it I'm Santa Claus Cause Christmas comes every day You can hear them sleigh bells ringing now Every time you turn around, this the way Thank you, I'm a human being It's nothing but a wrong Cause to bring you present every once in a while Don't think I'm Santa Claus Lindy, oh Lindy You're sweeter than sugar cane Lindy, Lindy, say you'll be mine While the moon am a shining And my heart am a twining Meet me, dear little Lindy, by the wall of men I'm fine. Oh, Lindy, Lindy, sweeter than sugar cane. Oh, Lindy, Lindy, say you'll be mine. While the moon am a shining and my heart am a twining. Meet me, dear little Lindy, by the wall of men I'm fine. Now keep a little close to corner in your heart for me, heart for me. I'll be as good to you as anyone can be. Just wait and see. If you promise what I'll ask you, we'll both agree, both agree. Keep a little close to corner in your heart for me. Keep, 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 keep a little close to corner in your heart for me, heart for me. I'll be as good to you as anyone can be. Just wait and see. If you promise what I'll ask you, we'll both agree, both agree. Keep a little close to corner in your heart for me. It's Lindy, oh Lindy, you're sweeter than sugar cane. Lindy, Lindy, say you'll be mine. While the moon am a shining and my heart am a twining. Meet me, dear little Lindy, by the wall, I'm in on the vine. Now everybody wakes for the father. He sits around all day with his feet up to the fire. Smoking a pipe of clay, mother takes in washing, so is sister and everybody wakes at our house that day. Old man, it's Lindy, oh Lindy, you're sweeter than sugar cane. Lindy, Lindy, say you'll be mine while the moon am a shining and my heart am a twining. Meet me, dear little Lindy, by the wall, I'm in on the vine. Father went to work this morning at a dollar and a half a day. Done took his feet from the fire, done throwed his pipe away. Mother's quit ticking and washing, so is sister Ann. Now everybody's taking vacation, said the old man. It's Lindy, oh Lindy, sweeter than sugar cane. Lindy, Lindy, say you'll be mine. While the moon am a shining and my heart am a twining, 
meet me dealing by the wild I'm in I'm fine. All right. That was Don't Think I'm Santa Claus by Lil McClintock, uh, who was a street performer who also spent time playing and traveling medicine shows. And he only ever recorded four songs, all in, during one session in Atlanta in 1930. After, after that, nothing is known of him at all. Maybe Jeff Mangum got him. <laughs> the song itself is really interesting in just how it's structured. It's actually four songs, which are four totally distinct songs, kind of mashed together that he probably learned while playing in the medicine shows. The songs, first one, he used a song called I'm Santa Claus, is from You Must Think I'm Santa Claus, which was written and recorded in 1904. The chorus is from a song called Watermelon Vine, Lindy Lou, also from 1904. And then the two other fragments that he uses are from Keep a Little Cozy Corner in Your Heart, um, from 1905, and Everybody Works But Father, also 1905. But that one was based on an old English song. It's commonplace for songs, blues songs and folk songs to take bits and pieces from other older songs, but this is like four completely different sounds that he mashed together in a really great way. It's a fun, fun song. Really well done. And I have this on a record store release called Death Might Be Your Santa Claus from 2012 on Legacy Records, and it's a collection of sermons, music, blues, jazz, gospel, and devotionals. The the process of piecing together a song from other songs is just so cool to me. Like how you can do that and get away with it and make it a you know a really great, cool sounding song. Yeah, so. and it, it sounds like one song that was yeah. his song. Uh, it's really good. I wish he'd wish he'd had a chance to record more. Absolutely. My next song is by Gavin Bryars with a cameo from Tom Waits, and it's called Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. This one thing I know, for he loves me so. Jesus' blood never failed me yet, never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. This one thing I know for he loves me Jesus' blood Never found me, yes. Never found me, yes. Thank you. 
All right, that was Gavin Bryars and Tom Waits with Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet. And this was originally recorded by Gavin Bryars in 1971 while he was helping out a friend who was making a film kind of right near Waterloo Station. While filming, a drunken chorus broke out among some homeless guys, and they were singing from songs from operas and ballads and some religious songs. One of them, and one of the few who didn't drink, started singing this song. And Briars was recording the whole thing. And when he later played the recording at home, he realized that it formed a perfect, never-ending loop, and the man's voice was in perfect tune with his piano. Hmm. So he put in piano on it, uh, and while he was copying the recording, and he was thinking of adding other orchestra pieces in it, he left the room. There were other people in there. It was I think he was doing it like in the back room of a gallery. He was just kind of recording stuff. And when he returned, the people had, like there were a lot of people in the room, and all of them were just dead silent, and a couple of them were even crying. Uh, So the song had been playing on loop the whole time, and it had some kind of like solemn power that just mesmerized everybody. The song was released originally in 1975 on Eno's label, Obscure Records. And then in 1993... Briars revised and extended it. He added instrumentation, kind of what he had been thinking about originally, and then he also added the voice of Tom Waits. The 1975 version was 25 minutes long, while the 1993 version was 74 minutes long, filling (laughs) the CD completely. And in just this past April, there was a 24-hour-long performance of this song at the Tate Modern, which is crazy. That is The version I have is on a Christmas compilation that just came out last month called A Very Cool Christmas. It's a double album with one of the LPs on red vinyl and the other on green, and I think it's on music on vinyl. It's a really good collection. It's also got some really awful stuff on it, but I have been looking for this song on vinyl for an awful long time, Uh, so I'm really glad I have it. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that years ago. Did you have the CD? Yes. I sold all of my CDs like about seven or eight years ago, and that was probably in there somewhere because I don't have it anymore. All right. That's that's awesome. 
definitely the sort of song I think most of my mood during Christmas fits. Um. <laughs> it's great to play song Christmas songs that aren't actually about Christmas. Yes, that's my favorite sort. In fact, that's what my next song sort of is. Uh, my next song is Christmas Time in Prison, which is a John Prine song, but this is by his Golden Messenger and Lucinda Williams. Well, it was Christmas in prison. The food was real good. We had turkey and pistols carved out of wood. A dream of her always. Even when I don't dream, her name's on my tongue and the blood's in my strings. Wait a while, eternity. Old Mother Nature's got nothing on me. Come to me, burn to me, come to me now. I'm alone in my sweetheart, I'm flowing by God. Your mom smelled the chess game But someone I'd admire Or a picnic in the rain After prairie fire Her heart is as big as this Whole goddamn jail She's sweeter than sacred At a drugstore sale Wait a while He the John Prine classic, uh, Christmas Time in Prison. And this is another record that was given to us by the great people at Kindercore as another one they pressed. And uh, they pressed it for Merge Records, which is, you know, one of the best labels ever. Uh, and it's a really great album. It's uh, it's called You Wish. It's a Merge Records holiday album. So they used 
a lot of their best artists and they sang some originals and they did some classics and there's it's just um, definitely worth picking up. This has always been one of my favorite Christmas songs. I love the John Prine version, but um uh, this version's fantastic too. I I really enjoy his Golden Messenger and of course Lucinda Williams is one of my favorite singers, not to mention songwriters, but her voice is amazing and and they do, you know, it's just a beautiful rendition of a really melancholy and sweet song about Christmas wherever you are, you know, and I think that's something that, you know, as sometimes we spend time away from where we want to be or where our heart is, you know, but it's still it's still something that we kind of have to think about. So I don't know where I'm going with that. Anyways, uh, I love Lucinda Williams. I really enjoy his Gold Messenger, and that's just, just a beautiful song. Um, there's a lot of really great songs on it. Um, I would definitely uh, check that out. It's called You Wish Emerge uh, Records Holiday. If you enjoyed that song, you'll enjoy the rest. There's a great version of William Tyler doing Jesus Christ, the big star song. There's uh, Eric Bachman from Archers of Loaf, and he was he did an original. There's a one by Mac doing a song. So just 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 a ton of great stuff. A lot of great merge artists. So sometimes it's nice to have new Christmas music, but still in the spirit. All right. I think all we have to do now is uh, finish up with some audio trivia. Okay. So we're gonna play the trivia clips again. And what I'm looking for, if you can, artist who's singing the song. And what's the name of the song? And But more important than that, what is the urban legend or myth that surrounds the song? The primary one, if there, if you can think of other ones. And I'm looking for one specific urban legend regarding each. Okay. All right, here we go. Track one. I was not offended, for I knew I had to rise above it all, or drown in my own shit. Track three. Track four. Seven. 
that there are a lot of them what do you have all right the first song i have i think it's love roller coaster by the ohio players correct i have no idea what the urban legend on that is though so what this one is there's a scream that i put in that clip then that scream is allegedly a woman being stabbed to death in the studio or the other rumor is that uh, she was being burned by heated honey, like the woman on the cover of the album. <laughs> yeah. So, and the actual person who screamed that is the keyboard player, whose name is Billy Beck. It shows up on a lot of what are the craziest conspiracy theory, urban legends in music. It's it's a fun one. I didn't, yeah. I'm glad nobody got hurt, but that's a really strange thing to yeah to have a rumor about. <laughs> okay. I'll have to listen to that scream again. All right. The second one is Funkadelic, um, and the song is Maggot Brain. Yes. And I think the the only um, story I think I remember about this is that George Clinton told the guitar player, and I want to say his name's Eddie Hazel, if, if my memory is serving. Yep, that's correct. Didn't he say something like, you need to play guitar solo? Like, because it's, it's the start before that really long, amazing guitar solo. And it say, play the guitar solo like your mom just died, or something like that. That is not what I was going for. Okay. And I don't know if that's true or not. I saw that in a lot of places, and I didn't see that really denied. Uh, but the rumor I was looking for is that George Clinton came up with the title of the song because he was said to have found the body of his dead brother one day in a Chicago apartment, and out of its smashed head were maggots crawling crawling oh my gosh um not true (laughs) so didn't happen but it's a good Um, it's another good one there you go (laughs) it's a lot more sinister than i thought all right number three that is uh phil collins in the air tonight yes and i'm pretty sure we might have talked about this on the on a show before but i think it's uh, allegedly he wrote it after watching somebody drown to death or maybe killing somebody by drowning. Yep, something like that, yeah. So uh, the most well-known version of that, there are different versions, like there's some where he killed somebody, but I think the one that I saw the most was that he witnessed someone drowning, but he was too far away to do anything. However, there was somebody else that was really close and didn't do anything. That years later... Phil Collins found out who that guy was who just sat by and watched somebody drown. And he invited him to a concert, giving him a front row seat. And then when he was performing this song, he just publicly humiliated him in various ways. But none of that is true. Seems like a very detailed kind of thing. 
Yeah. I wonder what the genesis of that story was. All right, the fourth song, I do not know the name of the song. I think it's Judas Priest. It is. Okay. So I think this is something we definitely talked about in a previous episode. I think this is the song that allegedly had the backmasking that made the kid kill somebody else or kill themselves. Yeah, the song is called Better By You, Better Than Me. And when played backwards, it allegedly says, do it, do it. And yeah, there were two kids who killed themselves, and then the family sued Judas Priest and lost. All right. Fifth song is uh, Louie Louie by the Kingsman. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm perhaps conflating two, two rumors. At first I thought it was the first song where allegedly there was a bad word screamed, but I think that might be a kink song. I think the rumor about this one is there's an FBI file on it. There is an FBI file on it. What the rumor was is that the lyrics were obscene and could be heard clearly if you played the single at 33 and a third rather than 45, which wasn't true. And yeah, the FBI even looked into it, but they couldn't figure out what they were saying either. But it sounds like the the actual truth of the lyrics is that I think that they were written in Pigeon English. And so like the lyrics were like, me see Jamaica moon above, it won't be long, me see me love, something like that. Um, mm. At least that's what I found. Um, so it was really hard for people to decipher it. And then they also had, on top of that, really shoddy recording equipment. So it was really hard to figure out what was being said. The rumor itself that it was obscene, did it got the FBI involved after so many people complained to the FCC and the FBI. When they finished, they said that they were unable to interpret any of the words. It took them 30 months to investigate that. Agent Dale Cooper had to go into town and... (laughs) (laughs) We need a third season. (laughs) Okay. The next song is Don McLean, American Pie. I feel like somewhere I know a rumor about the song, but I didn't pull it. The only rumor about this is that people thought that the name American Pie was the name of the plane that Buddy Holly was on, and mm. um, but it wasn't. That plane actually had no no name at all. It was a single-engine plane that they chartered in Iowa. It had no name. It was just a registration number, like N3794N. It doesn't mean anything, like most of Don McLean's words. <laughs> I heard the uh, plane was uh, piloted by Glenn Miller, though. Dun, dun, dun. All right. Number seven. That's uh, Bonnie Prince Billy's version of Puff the Magic Dragon. Yes. I could only guess it's a rumor. I know that they've, they've always been adamant that it's not about marijuana. It's yep. that it's not about that, even though it seems pretty clear it could be. Uh, the rumor is, yeah, where Puff is, obviously Puff, Jackie Paper, Rolling Papers. Hana Lee is actually, ho- well, allegedly a village in Hawaii that was known for growing really potent pot. But none of that's probably true. They have consistently said it has nothing to do with pot. I don't think Peter, Paul, or Mary have ever take, uh, enjoyed, imbibed. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Peter Yarrow, who wrote it, 
one of his assertions was that they were going to Car- Cornell, and he said, at Cornell in 1959, no one smoked pot. There you go. All right, and the last song, I think that's Sharon Jones again. It is. And that's Wild Horses. Yep. And then the big rumor about that is that that Graham Parsons actually wrote that song, not not Keith Richards, and he kind of gave it to Keith Richards because the Stones were kind of in trouble. Correct. And we, we went through that during the last Holiday episode, I believe, or at least one of them in the past, uh, very clearly debunked uh, that Graham Parsons wrote Wild Horses, but he did not. I mean, it does kind of sound like a Graham Parsons song. I mean, that that was fun. That, that was a good way to get a few more uh, crazy conspiracies in there. So I think we jam-packed them full. All right. Well, I think that about does it. Uh, as always, it's Christmas or Hanukkah or any other holiday you celebrate. It's a good time to get people that you care about and love some some presents. Might I suggest a, uh, why don't you get them some, some music, get them some records, get them, uh, that merge compilation or get them some Sharon Jones or get that new, uh, compilation Joe is talking about, or just get them whatever they like, but make sure when you get it, you get it from an independent record store or, you know, somebody who besides a big conglomerate, um, who makes some money, um, helping out people who, who work hard to bring us great music. Uh, and have some good ethics about it. But yeah, definitely, you know, when we do these episodes, it's all about education, except this one, which is pretty much all bullshit. But normally it's about education. But we definitely want you to, we feel strongly that you should uh, support some some good people who work hard to bring you music. And if you get a chance, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on each is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We have a Facebook page. We have an email address, which is highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. We are on the Pantheon Music Network, and that is just booming. There are like five new five new podcasts on there like in the last couple of weeks. It's great. They kind of have a group where we all, all the podcast hosts kind of chat, and they, one of the things they were asking is like, describe what Pantheon is. And somebody I thought had a real nice apt description, which is it's, it's like the 60 minutes of music, you know, 60 minutes of rock and roll history. That's a great way of explaining it. There's lots of fascinating, uh, well-researched, well-presented stuff about music and music history. And then there's us. We're like the Andy Rooney at the end. So Pantheon just announced that they have, they're adding a lot of podcasts, but one of the ones that they added is called Rock's Back Pages. And one of the hosts of that is Barney Hoskins. He's a great writer. We've used him as reference for re- some of the research I've done, and I'm very excited to kind of catch up on some of these episodes and hear what he and the other hosts are talking about, because everything he's written that I've read has been wonderful. Absolutely. Hopefully they their, uh, their standards aren't going to push us out when, when they realize they can get people who are not, you know, writing stories about the Beatles not existing.com and, uh, Lady Gaga killing Lou Reed. One other thing, and we don't uh, grovel too often, but we could really use some uh, ratings, like uh, five stars on all your podcast sites. Apparently that helps other people find us. I don't know. It's something that other podcasts seem to say regularly, so I feel like I should say even once in a while. But um, 
no, we would appreciate any sort of uh, positive rating. Even just telling somebody, hey, take a listen. We have, uh, I think this is about our 64th uh, episode, so there's something for everybody, that's for sure. Yeah, and just let us know that you're out there, and having some feedback would really be wonderful. All right, we better get out of here while we're, say, get out while we're ahead. We'd probably be too generous for this current situation. Yeah, the show would have been over at two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, we appreciate you all, and... Thank you. Have a wonderful holiday season, and we'll see you next time. I have gigantic eyebrows. Hi, I'm Cindy Howes. Basic Folk is my podcast featuring honest conversations with folk musicians. A crisis is actually kind of exhilarating. You know what to do. I unplugged from the internet. I walked every day, even if it was five below. One day I walked. Hope you had a good pair of gloves. I did. Great. Thank you. (laughs) Can you talk about Bob Dylan? I can. Uh, How you met him and your favorite memory of him? Well, you're not going to get that one. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast fosters the folk music community and showcases a genre that is often misunderstood. Ironically, Basic Folk features complex conversations about the human experience witnessed from an artistic angle. Whatever I was telling myself in terms of like, oh, it's like important for me to like just keep my personal life and my career separate. No matter how you kind of justify it, there's something that's not good for you. The psychological buildup over time even of just like having to check myself in conversation, that's just like not healthy. How do you approach both of these like very straight worlds as a musician? and as a human being who doesn't fit those stereotypes. I'm on a rainbow-colored unicorn (laughs) flying at them, and they they don't know what to do with me, but I'm there like a little bee. (laughs) Our definition of folk is extremely broad, so you'll hear interviews from Katie Tunstall, Livingston Taylor, Amanda Shires, and many more on Basic Folk. Available wherever you get your podcasts or at cindyhouse.net. Basic Folk is part of the Pantheon Podcast Group. Thanks for listening. Okay, bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.